Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt here with Evan Bellinger at Bellinger Estate in Newburgh. It's uh, February 9th, 2021. Evan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, First question, as you know, why wine? I'm one of those weird people that always my entire life wanted to get into grapes and wine. Growing up, I had a children's Bible, and there was photos of grapes and wine and vines, and I always liked those. I liked the photos of it and always wanted to do that. So then as I got older, I had gardens, and I always wanted to grow things. And wine grape growing is so diverse, and a lot of folks will talk about that, but there's, there's history, there's geology, there's soil science, there's uh, topography and geography and all these things, and then there's uh, the horticulture of growing the, uh, the vine and uh, chemistry and the winemaking and the marketing sales, and all of these things add up to wine and the wine industry and the, wine, the world of wine. And that to me is so interesting and diverse because you're not, you're not niching down to something super narrow. It can be incredibly diverse. You can travel all over the world with this kind of secret language of wine and be able to be instantly conversant with folks, mm-hmm. even sometimes without, without actually being able to be conversant with folks mm-hmm. due to the language barriers. And so it's just deeply fascinating to me and I, I love it. So growing up wanting to do it, tell me about what that meant to you in terms of uh, education, childhood, and, and choosing what you were going to do kind of after high school. Yeah, it was, it's interesting because I wanted to make wine before I had ever tried wine. And uh, we're not like a wine family. We're not an ag family. I'm from northwest Washington, a town called Bellingham. And my dad was a structural steel guy and, and welder, and my mom ran a storage complex, so that's not you know, how most Grand Cru things start. But I always knew I wanted to do it, and so ended up coming down to Oregon State to study horticulture, which had a very renowned horticulture program. But the horticulture program wasn't big, and it, was, it felt like it was me and a couple of professors um, with an interest in viticulture. So it was very, very, very interesting. Loved all the horticulture classes, the broad horticulture, and then taking a few classes on viticulture, mm-hmm. and they ended up letting me out with a vitinology option, uh, which in like 2006. So that was kind of, a, the, kind of the early stage as Oregon State was growing that part of the program. Tell me about those classes, about the professors. It was really neat because the industry now is still fairly small, but it was smaller back then. And it was a lot of like one-on-one conversations uh, with people like Barney Watson was one of our wine uh, professors. Um, I'm forgetting some of the other names, but uh, Bernadine Strick was in horticulture and just taught these amazing classes. And I still get a huge amount of value out of that today, being able to identify plants and uh, native plants, horticultural crops. There's so many amazing plants out there that you don't think about because you don't know about them. But then you see, oh my gosh, this lavender, this olive tree, these other things, it can come to make something really, really cool. So we're trying to do that a little bit here with lavenders planted underneath all the end pipes. Uh, we're going to do a, a cider apple block and uh, just want to have and a formal garden, and we want to have more more horticulture and blend the line of just a winery with kind of a farm stand uh, farm feel. So, for Oregon State, what was your next step? Then I did a Oregon Wine History podcast. So, uh, as you and I were chatting a little bit, for some odd reason, I uh, did an interview in 07, and so I wanted to give a blanket apology for anybody I offended <laughs> or. Uh, using too many curse words, uh, but it was it was very interesting because I had only had a few years uh, growing grapes then, and uh, I should have been more humble. But that's not really my my strong suit. <laughs> and uh, so, in 2005, I worked with the great Scott Robbins at uh, Woodhall, and still a friend, uh, still a mentor to me, and still saw him this last fall uh, picking up uh, cider apples down at Lewis Brown Hort Farm, 
and so it's always wonderful to go back and visit. But in 2005, helped out at uh, Woodhall Vineyard, which is Oregon State's vineyard, and then in 2006, I was, it was my senior year, I was working one day a week up north here with uh, Buddy Beck and Angel Martinez at Advanced Vineyard Systems, and um, the rest of the week going to school, probably, and then helping out still at Woodhall. So that was a busy last year, dating the beautiful Kim Bellinger. And um, so that was, that was a lot, but it was really fun, and it was just a, a wonderful moment. And then I spent the next five years working with Buddy and Angel uh, here in the North Willamette Valley. I remember getting introduced to Buddy by Scott because Buddy Beck and Scott Robbins had gone to, uh, I think, graduate school together. And uh, one of Buddy's challenges was nobody was coming out of schools and anybody coming out of schools didn't want to go out and actually work uh, out in the field. And so uh, he was excited to hire me and I was one of the few graduates. And so I remember Scott Robbins driving me up and he was like, on our way back, he was like, you know, if you could, if you work at a company like that, which to me at the time seemed huge, 250 managed acres, it's like, if you could do that, you could do anything. And it was a great opportunity to, to grow and, and do what I do now. So tell me about that experience then of, of working with what you thought was a lot of acres at, at the time. Um, how did you, how did you manage? How did you learn? What, what was the kind of day-to-day, week-to-week life for you? It was, it was certainly challenging, and when I started, I didn't speak a lick of Spanish, and so I'd taken a couple classes in, in, in college, and none of it stuck because I didn't speak Spanish on a daily basis. So I remember my first two Spanish words were uh, buena suerte, which is good luck. Um, and a guy named Enrique like put me on a ditch witch, and he told me, buena suerte. <laughs> and I very embarrassingly, like, embarrassingly uh, ran it out of diesel um, later that day, like a total idiot. And um, so that was a really it, tough and interesting time because I was like cramming at night to learn Spanish and it was a lot of hours I wasn't used to, uh, but it was, it was great. And that's how, that's how you learn how to do it. And managing multiple sites is just a different beast than one single site. And there's challenges and pros and cons to both, but I need to know what not just what I'm seeing, but what am I not seeing? If I'm at this site seeing one thing, there's 10 other things happening. And I've had it, heard it equated to like plate spinning, where there's plates spinning all around, and then you have to like go to the uh, one that's about to fall off, hit that again, and then keep everything going. So that's really a logistical and planning challenge that, uh, that was a challenge and still is. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. So at that point, there were not a, not a lot of those kind of vineyard services uh, around doing multiple site, multiple acreage. Uh, tell me about uh, your experience there and working with the different owners and different and the kind of different expectations, different demands, uh, while you're learning on what kind of learning on the job. Yeah, it, I would have to say it's it's really fun. It's it's kind of more a high octane, faster pace than you think of for agriculture, because it's a very connected. There's a lot of cell phone calls, texts, emails, and things like that. And to me, it's really interesting. We're meeting people from all over the world. So it was a lot of folks, you know, attorneys from Portland or doctors from Texas and th things like that from all over the world have come to Oregon to plant a vineyard and why they did that and what their goals are and learning from them. I, uh, a old client of mine, Way, he was a, ended up being a developer, but in the Cold War, he flew um, def, like planes that would escort the planes that had nukes on them. And one time, he, he was in a discussion with the general manager, and he was like, you know what? They, and they were kind of having an argument. He was like, I once had to escort nuclear weapons around planet Earth, and then we would have had to have dropped them, and I would have had to have lived with that. And this, so sometimes when I tell you to do something, just do it. Um, and that was he was a very nice guy, but it was like, oh, snap, yeah. It was very interesting, and you would never have met somebody like that, yeah, I, I think, in other industries. It just brings such a diverse uh, set of folks to Oregon. When someone hired AVS and, and, and your services, tell me about how the, the balance of what you could do and what you're expected to do and, and, and the, the kind of standards being set by the, by the, by the owner versus what was by kind of plausible on your end and mm -hmm. how, that, how you kind of made that balance work. 
it's interesting. I won't answer the question, but I'll answer it in a different way. If you look at a vineyard, you can tell who designed it and who planted it. And even without looking at the um, age or the thickness, you can tell sometimes um, what the likely clones and things like that are, and be, or the age and kind of the vintage. So Buddy Beck and Angel had a specific you know, type of end post, and they had a specific type of chain and a certain number of sets and things like that. And a particular spacing they like. For example, 7x5 at the time was their favorite. And they like to irrigate and things like that. So you can look at a vineyard and say 7x5, you know, uh, Pomard on RG with that end post. I bet that was Buddy and Angel. And more than likely you'd be right. And it's interesting, you look at Domain Druin, uh, which is where Buddy and Angel learned a lot of um, uh, their horticulture here, that was just a scaled down version of the same system. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's interesting that um, we as vineyard managers uh, can still leave our, our thumbprint a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. Because in a sense, you don't want to leave a thumbprint, right? Our goal here, you know, the clients, typically a client may be, um, at the time, I would say this is more common, like just somebody wanting to make the, the best wine possible. And that's still very much true, but there's also more corporate uh, growers that larger entities that are looking you know, for something specific and they're looking for a, a yield to price ratio kind of thing, and which is still very valid. But it's interesting that you can still uh, have an impact because ideally, we don't want to have too much of it because we really want to find out what this hillside can do and produce and get the best out of it. As you were learning, I'm curious what, and, and, and then to now, how do you judge a vineyard that you've not seen before? What, what is the first thing you, what, what do you look for out of a vineyard to judge the kind of characteristics about it? That's a tough question. And I think every, almost everything is plantable. And sometimes folks will ask that, like, can we plant grapes here? And the answer is almost always, yes, you can. But the question is what it's going to do. And so one thing I love about managing multiple sites is we get as close to anybody to like metadata for, um, for the industry. And so if we farm five sites on Laurelwood, we start to get a sense of what Laurelwood does. And then we can say, you know what? If I have another vineyard to plant to Laurelwood, I'm gonna go with this spacing, or I'm going to do this instead. And you can kind of get those, those hints. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the advantages of, of obviously hiring a pro to do it, because this is all we do and talk about all day, every day, is plant vineyards and farm and grapes. And so you get that, that advantage. And uh, even like, say, when we're planting our, our vineyard here, we've got the, the lessons and sometimes the tough lessons um, from previous generations that we can then put, hopefully, to good use and, and navigate a little bit closer to what we're going for. Mm -hmm. So what was next for you after, after ABS? Uh, so then, um, in 2011, started with Results Partners. Been there uh, since. Um, very much enjoying my time there. We have been on a growth spurt, and it's been uh, it's different in a lot of great ways from when I started in 2011. And we, we've grown, and it's always, to me, always so interesting. I was in a vineyard this morning that it's a low elevation generally, but a lot of beautiful like uh, basalt rock there at the surface. And that's rare for that um, for that elevation, and so it's just interesting. And to me, it's very fun to to find this out. We don't know necessarily what that you know part of the hillside will do, but if somebody buys it and we plant it and we make it into good wine and we keep it separate all the way through, we'll find out. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time mm -hmm. because we don't get very many data points. You can every other industry you can A to B test and find something out very fast. In here, it's like, well, let's plant it and six years we'll taste it and then we'll decide if we made the right call or not. What was your role at, R at RP when you started, and, and how has it changed to now? What was my role? Um, similar to what I do now, except as we've grown, we've kind of niched down. And so today I am oversee an area like the Shahala Mountains, part of Dundee, Yamhill Carlton, and just in terms of production and 
that's a lot to do and uh, a lot to manage. And earlier when we were smaller, I had my hand in more development side evaluations as well as uh, operations and management, things like that. So you talked about a second ago about the developing a site and how you, you it's, it's a long time until you're gonna know how, how you did. Uh, were there pitfalls for you in the early days? Did you, did you make, some, make some choices you wish you hadn't? Whether it was, a, some, or were, have you mostly had kind of a pretty good idea where, where, where and how to plant grapes? There's definitely, interestingly, so I was listening to my, my previous uh, interview and I say something at the age of 23, 24 and I was like, don't be a cheapskate and do a little bit of drain tiling when you should just drain tile the whole thing if you need it. And that really hit me because when we planted our vineyard here, I, what did I do? I cheaped out. I only did a little bit of drain tile and did not do the, the real full scale drain tiling. And as I was pruning my vineyard and it's soppy in one corner, I was like, Dang it, I knew exactly what to do, and I didn't do it. Um, it, there, it, it, it's a great question because we, if you only ever have one vineyard, you, you look at that vineyard map like it's, like it's the Bible and like it's the truth, right? But then if you're gonna plant the vineyard next door, you're asking yourself, if I had this to do over again, what would I do different? And I think, Generally, in the 15, 16 years I've been in this, we're tending towards wider spacings because labor is, was tight when I started and it's getting tighter uh, for a lot of reasons. And so we want it to be mechanizable. We, the climate is helping us generally and getting warmer so we can uh, ripen more tons per acre and things like that generally. And so I think in these years, we've gone a little bit wider. There are some clones that were very exciting as they came out, and then as we grow them, we're not as excited about. 943 is a classic example. If you are making it for your own wine, it's amazing. If it's going to your state production, it yields so poorly, like it's very tough to make any money uh, growing it as a farming enterprise. Um, so things like that, something like Pinot Gris, we, and the industry planted a lot of that, you know, in the 90s to mid 2000s. And ever since then, it's been a tough slog to make any money growing Pinot Gris, um, because at the time that was like Oregon's white. And that has not been true. And now Chardonnay is in this amazing renaissance. And so some of the things we're, we're screwing up, we won't know for a few years. And um, you're kind of making the best choice you can at the time and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you're working with a lot of clients who don't necessarily have a background in viticulture, horticulture like you do, uh, part of the reason they're hiring you in the first place. Uh, is it difficult to understand that, kind of, that level of patience and that level of like, long term? Is it difficult for you to get across that like, you can't just pivot on a dime in this industry and you have to kind of think long term? Yeah, a, a lot of clients get it, I would say, but a lot of our clients, um, they got here by, being, by pushing the envelope, by, by pushing forward for action and things like that. And so sometimes they, they want to go a little bit too fast. And you can say, uh, you know, if, say you're going to remove a vineyard that has phylloxera, you're better off letting it go fallow for a year or two or three or, or more. And sometimes that can just seem like a lot of time. And so a client's oftentimes are in a hurry. And so you have to balance that and do education in terms of, hey, let's not, let's not do, let's be very thoughtful about this. Mm -hmm. And then it's interesting as you're developing a site, there's always that question of how far do we push down the hill or uh, here's a nice tree that we would love to keep. Um, and some clients you know, will say, don't touch a single tree. And then other clients that are um, less concerned about that. And so it's, it's this balance where I have an opinion, and um, there's kind of best practices, but then the client who's, who's paying the bills has, has an opinion as well. And so if finding a, a good compromise and balance between that is, is fun. So when, when, uh, when a, wh what point of the process are you, you mentioned you're, you're there for the production part of things. You're not doing the development anymore. So tell me, when you're brought in, when you come in, what's the, what's the general status of the vineyard, what's the general status uh, of what you walk into? Yeah, it's typically, and 
uh, I'm not a stranger to it during the development process, um, but I'm not point with the client. So typically, we're, the vines are, are in the process of being planted, and it's our crews that are doing that and things like that So um, within RPA. And so I, I'm familiar with it, but it's just not something like I'm point on. And we do a lot, so it's, uh, specialization makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You talked about uh, labor and mechanization, two of the topics that come up in a lot of our interviews, of course. So I'm gonna talk about mechanization first. Obviously, one of the things Oregon has always prided itself on is, is, is hand-held wine, artisan wine. So tell me about how you've seen that shift and, and how mechanization is in the industry now and, and maybe the, sort of the future for it. Yeah, it was interesting. When I started at RP, we didn't have a single hedger. We didn't have a leafer. We didn't have a harvester. And now we have five harvesters and a great many leafers and a great many hedgers. And in some things, the machine does a better job. And like hedging, for example, you don't want to be doing this uh, hand hedging for 10 hours a day in July. Not that much fun. Uh, the hedger rocks and rolls. Um, with, hand, with leafing, the machines, I feel, don't always do as good a job as like somebody there in a tent uh, could do on that. But because you don't have the people, you need to run through with the machine, open it up, get uh, light and air and exposure to those clusters. Then you can come in, uh, buys you a couple weeks to come in later and, and hand uh, leaf pole. Mm -hmm. And uh, harvest, historically, mechanical harvest has been viewed as less quality. And somebody told me something that really changed my mindset on it. Don't think of, don't compare hand harvest with machine harvest. Um, compare hand harvest and destemming in the winery with field destemming. And if you think about that, okay, well, now the machine is going over and essentially field destemming, taking that berry off the rachis uh, out in the field. And in some cases, with the machine harvest guys talk about like harvesting marbles. And you've got this, this bin that has a little bit of juice and a beautiful Pinot Noir berries and they look like marbles and they're very clean. You compare that to something that was hand harvested, sent through December Crusher in the winery and they can look very similar. And so I think there's a lot of folks that are warming up to mechanical harvest and I think it can make amazing wines. And labor, obviously, you mentioned an issue when you started, more of an issue now. Uh, tell me how that has changed and, and what you think the sort of future for hand labor is here in, in Oregon. Yeah, I think every year it seems worse than the last. And you say that every year and try to have like a surprised look on your face, right? And so it's, it's always tighter. Uh, Oregon has a very high minimum wage compared to the nation, and it's been going up. Um, every July 1st, I believe. And that makes it tougher and more dynamic and higher pricing to find folks. But that in and itself isn't a bad thing because we want people to make more money. And as long as everybody can make money along the way and, and keep doing it, it it's great. Mm -hmm. But there are just fewer people. You know, there's, it's very rare to find somebody born in the US who wants to work out in the field. Um, I would be one of them, but um, but I don't want to be brush pulling, you know, every day for, for a month. And, but that's an important job. And it, I think pricing out in the field is going to go up. I think pricing um, to the end clients and winery is going to go up. They're going to go up in lockstep. You look at other regions of the world, France, Australia, like everywhere else for that matter, how are they dealing with the same challenges? Mm -hmm. uh, global birth rates have been falling for a long time. Uh, birth rates in, in Central America and Mexico have been falling for a long time. There's just fewer people. Mm -hmm. and, and how do we get smarter about it? Mm -hmm. And I think vineyard management companies have a responsibility to set up vineyards well where they can make amazing uh, wine that you could handpick forever and it's a, maybe it justifies that. Or if five years from now, 10 years from now, the vineyard doesn't justify it, you need to be able and set up two machine picket, two machine uh, hedge and leaf and things like that. Because if we don't, we're doing a great disservice to the person that owns that vineyard or the next person to own the vineyard. And I also, I, I'm sure this has been very well covered, but uh, 
the undocumented community in Oregon, and, and in fact the entire nation, it's, it's really a travesty that has not really been, um, it's, it's not part of the national discussion. Mm -hmm. And when you look at people that have been here for decades and uh, helping build our state and our community and our wines, um, it's, uh, it, it's terrible uh, to be in the situation we're in. And nobody talks about it and it's, um, uh, and it's terrible, and hopefully someday it'll change. From your role in the industry, how do you manage it? How do you find labor? How do you keep labor? How do you promote labor? And how do you kind of protect labor? Yeah, uh, part of it is respect. And so something as simple as speaking Spanish to Span people who speak Spanish, like that matters and it counts and it's a respect that I, I appreciate you and I'm learning the language that you speak and you can of course communicate much better in that sense. Um, paying, uh, paying good wages and being able to attract the top talent to be able to continue farming vineyards. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, designing a vineyard. So for example, when we planted uh, this vineyard here at Warriors Rest, I knew I was going to be trying to do as much of the work as possible and I don't, uh, you need to think about that ergonomically. So our, our uh, fruiting wire is significantly higher than we have uh, in a lot of others because um, I am uh, uh, don't want to be bending down uh, when I'm 20 years from now, 40 years from now. And so, and for harvest, it's just that much faster. And the crews here last year were really excited because they're like, oh, you know, three tons breaker Chardonnay at chest height is so much better than one ton breaker Pinot Noir down 20 inches off the ground. Mm -hmm. And it just, it helps the whole thing work. Mm -hmm. um, and those grapes are still going to generally taste the same because they're from this site and that's the terroir coming out. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say Oregon's not innovative because I think Oregon is quite innovative as an industry, but the wine business historically oftentimes isn't innovative at all. It's like, well, why do you grow Pinot Noir? Well, the Romans brought it. Okay, cool. Um, then we're, we've got that settled. And um, we have to break sometimes our mental molds about like things like spacing because that affects uh, labor availability and the ability to mechanize. And we need to be looking at other regions of the world. How, did, how they solved this? What have they found? And the more we can collaborate and innovate, I think the better. If you if we do everything exactly like we've always done, it's, uh, we're going to fail. Mm -hmm. On that note, what are, what, how, what are the innovations you've seen, changes you've seen in viticulture and vineyard practices especially? This is a little bit inside baseball, or a lot inside baseball, but things like cross arms. So my colleague Alex Cabrera and I, I went out to Napa two or three years ago, and everybody's got cross arms. And so, well, what's the deal with that? And then working with uh, Ryan Collins at A to Z, he was a big fan of cross arms. So we have the great advantage at uh, Results Partners or another management company, like talk a client into it, you know, tell them the pros and cons and here's where you could save money. So now we have several vineyards where we've installed cross arms that will mean we're moving wires less frequently uh, during the season. So we can save labor in the summer and, um, and just make it more efficient to farm. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been big on cross arms, and um, there's a grape training system called Scott Henry, invented here in Oregon, and it looks a little bit unsightly, but it has a chance to almost double your yields. And I think for a lot of vineyard sites that have some higher vigor that they need to balance, it's a perfect choice, or some other way of getting more than just two canes out there. Mm -hmm. And so, those things really move the needle uh, if you're if you're thinking about them and if we're not too stuck in in the way it's always been done. Mm -hmm. When when clients come to Results Partners, what what how would you describe the services you give? How would you describe your, your farming style and how would you describe kind of the what they're going to get out of the out of it? We hope to we hope to meet their needs as well. So uh, if a client comes and wants the top, top end Pinot Noir and they've got a great site for it and um, 
they, they want assistance to do that, well, we can do that. And or if a corporate uh, client comes in and they're looking at a large lower elevation piece that really needs to kind of produce a lot of Pinot Noir or Chardonnay, we can do that as well. So um, we've got, I think, very, um, Nothing to be ashamed of in terms of our viticultural chops, our, our vit team, our development team, our operations team. We we get shit done, and so, uh, but without being like too myopic and and just thinking about it as a farming en enterprise. I remember a winemaker telling me once, he's like, Evan, this isn't the Oregon grape industry. This is the Oregon wine industry. And it's not just about growing more grapes better. It's about how do we end up with uh, amazing wines at the end or economical wines at the end. And so that's our goal is to you know reach our clients' goals um, in the best way possible. You bring up a good point there that, or a good, you work with winemakers as well, so obviously a whole different part of the industry than, than just a vineyard client. So tell me about those relationships, building relationships with winemakers in the industry and, and, and meeting their needs while also meeting your own. Yeah, I was very embarrassed uh, in myself from our, my 07 interview because it, it sounded very combative, like vineyard guys and, and winemakers don't get along, and that's just not been the case um, in the intervening years. Um, and. We're just two sides of the same coin, really. And we've got so many opportunities for collaboration. And I get a lot. I'm very blessed uh, where I'm at. You know, people like Brian Weil, Alexana, and, and John Gablehausen, they invite me into the cellar, so I'm tasting the uh, the experiments we've done in the year. Like, so we'll do an experiment in liquid liming. We'll do an experiment in leaf pulling, crop load, you know, uh, canopy height. And then at the end of the season, we're tasting that. And that is really fun for me. I like drinking wine at work. Um, getting paid, it's wonderful. But then I feel like that bit of innovation in a small way, you're pushing you're pushing progress forward, even if it's in a small way. Mm -hmm. And I think vineyard managers and winemakers can very much be partners in that. And uh, in a, it's a very collaborative relationship. Mm -hmm. And harvest can get a little bit uh, stressed, but you know, clarity and uh, well-worded, well crisp emails uh, work great. So <laughs> crisp in a good way. Crisp in a good way. Yeah. Tell me about Harvest at, at a place with the, the, your size and scope of results partners. Obviously, Harvest is happening at the same time roughly everywhere, all of your clients. So tell me about managing that time of year and how you do manage all of those needs. Yeah, luckily it does not happen all at once. So the phenology like tracks, so lower elevation and closer kind of to the center of the valley is warmer and so that ripens, it blooms a little bit faster. And so one of the great advantages we have is we're picking a little bit earlier than, uh, than the broad industry. So we can attract more pickers to go pick those early sites. We're picking uh, sparkling wine, then that goes into Chardonnay, then it goes into Rosé Pinot Noir. And then uh, that really gets everybody excited. Pickers are making money with us and then they'll stick with us as we move up the hill and to the west. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Harvard, I, I have a few gray hairs from Harvest, but that's okay. How do you prioritize at that time of year then? How do you sort of make sure everyone is getting what they want? First come, first serve on an email basis. And it's shocking, like you would think there would be a lot of challenges of, oh, I, I have to choose between winemakers. And that it has never happened in the time I've been at RP because you just push it out far enough and if a winemaker, and I've got several that do this, they'll say, hey, in you know 10 days, I think I'll want to pick 10 tons on that day and they've got it in the schedule, perfect. Those winemakers leave satisfied 100% of the time because they're, they're projecting ahead. Sometimes a winemaker will taste a, you know, go sample and then say, oh my gosh, this is surprisingly sweet. I missed the window, can you pick tomorrow? That is, if we can, we will, but it's tougher to uh, make that happen. We will if we can, but it's like, hey, I can't do it tomorrow as a first pick, I can do that tomorrow as a second pick. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Or, oh, I don't wanna be a second pick, let's go uh, three days from now as a first pick, perfect. And so the more we can communicate and the more we can plan ahead, we can kind of make everybody happy, um, with the exception of a few gray hairs. And, um, and then last year, of course, was very exciting with um, COVID and uh, wildfires and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah, but in, we, we got it all done. It was pretty impressive. 
I'm going to ask you about 2020 a little bit later. I'm very, very curious about your perspectives on 2020. But uh, I'm all, uh, with the vineyards you've worked with for a while, the clients you've had for a while, tell me about the process of getting to know a vineyard for you and, and how, how long it takes till you feel comfortable kind of knowing the space and, and, and how, um, how that kind of impacts what you do there or what you, what you recommend or suggest there. Yeah, there's limits to it, but you can really read a vine. So say uh, this is in February, you can really see how those vines grew. And when you're pruning, you can say, okay, last year 12 canes were left and they all grew about how we would like, then that was a good choice. Let's prune it down to 12 buds next year. Or the, it was left with 12 buds last year and the shoots didn't make it up to the top of the canopy. We need to now uh, leave less or they left too few buds and the ones that remain turned into these big honking thick uh, bull canes. And it's like, okay, then you need to kind of change that. Um, so that's kind of the dormant season side. During the, the growing season, you, conformity sounds like a bad word, but you want it to be consistent. Mm -hmm. You want, because you want, you don't want to like pick one block four different times because this part's stressy and this part's not. So your, your goal is to get it somewhat consistent uh, within that block. And then as you're walking a site in the, in the season, you're looking at, okay, are these leaves warm? Are they cool? Are they transpiring and breathing and, and sweating and things like that? And um, are they happy and healthy? And then just trying to maintain that. And then as you're looking forward, you're saying, okay, should I put more cover crop in to try to uh, tame these guys down? Should I cultivate that out to uh, take away the competition to really boost these guys? Does this need some amount of fertilizer? Does it need lime? Does it need a specific nutrient? Uh, and then we'll test for that and things like that. And then ultimately it's really, what does it taste like as finished wine? Um, so the more you can have a vineyard taken all the way through the process without getting blended, the more then years later you'll be able to say, oh, this is what, uh, this is what a shade tastes like from that year mm -hmm. and, and how it develops and see, okay, what is that site and what is, what is the winemaking or what's the region? Have you, you, one of the things Kim mentioned in her interview that we'll talk about a little bit later is about the site here and about kind of your decisions you've made here. And you, and you talked earlier in the interview about... Terrible vineyard. <laughs> C plus, but at the best. Uh, we, we ta you talked earlier about how different clients have different ideas of, with uh, things other than vines on their property with trees or versus... I'm, I'm curious, has that changed? Have you, have you seen um, what a kind of an ideal vineyard looks like change in people's minds? Or, or is that still roughly, is it still roughly kind of a model in people's heads of what a vineyard should be? I think my ideal vineyard has some other thing. And you look at the old world, old Europe, a lot of them are diversified farms where there's vineyards and, and something else, mm -hmm. uh, and animal agriculture uh, or something. And as much as I do think vineyards are here to stay, and I think we're gonna be growing Pinot Noir and Chardonnay here for many, many decades, I, I like the diversification of something else. Mm -hmm. uh, we have some bungalows on the property that we can rent out and have that kind of agriturismo uh, tourism aspect. And we want to have cider apples. And monoculture is just one thing. And uh, economically, it's, it's uh, concentration risk. So I like the idea of something more, but if you've got expensive land on, you know, jory soils, you don't want to, you know, put a hazelnut tree on there because it might make amazing Pinot Noir and hazelnuts. So uh, it's hard to justify spending a premium price to uh, have land that is not being used for vineyards. But also a lot of parcels have lower land, maybe a frost pocket that would do great with, uh, with another crop, mm -hmm. uh, grazing, um, you know, I think there's other things, you know, what the folks at Durant are doing with uh, olives and uh, I don't know if they're doing lavender commercially, but it, it's beautiful and, it's, and I think it helps. And I think from the tourism perspective, it's so interesting because it's, it's not like, oh, here's my, here's my Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, here's my Pinot Noir, here's our Chardonnay that we grow and here's, you know, estate grown chickens and here's uh, cider and here's nuts and here's all these things from, and here's a, you know, here for us, here's quilts that Kim made, and that, that fabric of what we're doing all comes together, and it's not just one thing. So you and, and people who work at RP and, and similar organizations have a kind of a unique perspective of the different AVAs and working at different sub-AVAs. 
tell me, as that has proliferated, and now we have so many sub-AVAs, what, what are the noticeable differences for you? And is it justified to have as many sub-AVAs as we do? I remember being, I remember being young and thinking we're over-balkanizing, right? And I think I was definitely wrong on that because now that we know these areas are different, there's, there's a benefit to delineating that. And I think Oregon's done a good job of not going too much too fast. And there's other wine growing regions where uh, the AVA is kind of like, there's overlap and things like that and it can be confusing. I think, uh, I think for, a, for a national market, you don't have to talk about, hey, I'm in you know, the Chehala Mountains. You can just be like, hey, this is a Willamette Valley Oregon Pinot Noir. And at some point you can be like, this is an Oregon Pinot Noir. But for the people who really care, I think it does matter and it, it is interesting. And so I think I got paid back by God because the, the boundary for the Chehala Mountains is like 50 feet on the other side of this property uh, boundary, even though we make the elevation. And so that was payback for, for clucking my tongue at like, of cutting up too many, too many AVAs. Um, but I would say it's very good to to grow grapes in the region a lot and for a long time and then turn around and divide it out. So that way you kind of know what you're dividing and, uh, and subdividing. Mm -hmm. Do the different AVAs bring different challenges for you? Yes. To, to paint with too broad a brush, you look at Ribbon Ridge and those soils are not robust from an uh, agricultural perspective. They're uplift marine sediments, they're, they're kind of droughty, and that makes amazing wines. But if your goal was to produce a lot of wine to go into a $25 Pinot Noir, that would not be a good AVA for you. Mm -hmm. It's a great AVA for high-end Pinot Noir. Um, there's, there's parts of other AVAs where, where the opposite is true. Like, mm -hmm. okay, uh, you know, thicker soils of this part of, of a different area can be very, can be very productive. Or, you know, hey, you got to watch out for elevation in the Olamide Hills because there might be some great sites that might be a little bit too high to consistently ripen. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's interesting and it's, it's fun to be working in the business to see that. Because I feel like if I was in a, in a state operation, I would know that estate very well, but not what's happening around the AVAs. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about your estate. Uh, Kim mentioned this was something you always had in mind. You always had the idea of having your own space, your own your own wine. So tell me about uh, this space, and what, what, why you chose it, and about kind of building building the vineyard and building the, the beginnings of Bellinger Estate. Yeah, we had watched this property for something like four or five years on Zillow, because it had been listed for a really long time. And, um, very much an aspirational kind of thing or like the way you look at expensive housing like oh that'd be nice but this property is 16 and a half acres has a main house has a bunch of outbuildings had two duplexes on it and 12 acres of, of old hazelnuts like for us that was just beyond perfect and it was not beyond perfect for all the people that passed on it for all those years that it was that it was for sale. And so we just looked at it and, and just like, oh man, that'd be neat. And then as we did better with um, some of our other real estate stuff, then it became to seem like maybe it's a possibility. And so then in 2016, we were able to close on the property and bought it from an amazing woman, Adelina Slocum. And Kim may have told you the, some of those stories, but um, I just get a kick out of um, you know, her um, being the, the guard when her dad was uh, making wine in Prohibition and she would be down at the road and if anybody drove, drove by or walked by, she'd run up and tell him to hide the wine. And um, her dad had bought this property with his discharge pay from World War I and hence why we call it Warrior's Rest to honor him, a, a fellow named Louis Dare and Adelina's dad. And he had cleared trees and planted his dreams. He'd planted a couple rows of, of grapes because he was a good Italian uh, immigrant and uh, he, made, he made his own wine here. So I feel very, very much I feel a connection to this property, to this land and, um, and to the family we, we purchased it from because I feel like it's the same dream of, uh, of making a go here in Oregon. So tell me about taking it over in the state it was and turning it into what it is now, especially from the vineyard side. What did you envision for a vineyard here and what were you, 
with all the lessons you've learned, all the vineyards you've seen, how did you decide what, what to do here? It was, it's infinitely easier for a client vineyard to be decisive and be like, you know what, you should do this and this and this. And then for me, it was like, oh my gosh, now this is, this is expensive. You know? <laughs> it's not expensive when they do it, it's expensive when I do it. Um, and we are not dot-com millionaires, and so we had to do things sequentially. We, we, um, we bid off things when we could, and um, this site is lower elevation. It's about 250 feet, um, and we've noticed as we've been coming down the hills, we've, we have vineyards that they tend to be a little bit earlier ripening the farther you come down the hill, and they tend to be a bit more productive. And so sometimes that's not de desirable, but for the wines we want to make, which is uh, we want them rich, we want them approachable, and we want them uh, ready for you to enjoy uh, daily and weekly, um, that is just perfect. And so we chose a little bit wider spacing because these are thick soils, we need the space to be able to balance out the vigor. We are going to be set up for that Scott Henry system uh, to potentially have a decent yields if the, the vines can handle it and when they can handle it. and um, and I kind of wanted to do a model vineyard of, of if I was going to do it, this is how I'd do it. And now this is my chance. And so the trellis is set up bulletproof for uh, mechanical harvest, uh, eight by five, so a bit wider spacing and um, kind of doing some innovative things on, and super inside baseball, but like uh, how we attach the wires to the end pipes. Um, it's, like we trialed some things here, and so that way we can kind of uh, do what I always tell people to do, which is uh, try and innovate and match the vineyard uh, to the vineyard side. And then when it came time to actually plant, what? How did you choose what you wanted to plant here? And that's the very embarrassing thing about like it's hard to be decisive. So. Um, our very last planting, I was I was just very much fretting, and we planted three rows, and it was originally going to be like a clonal block as an homage to the um, the first wine I ever made, which is the, from 2005, a, from uh, a clonal block at uh, at Woodhall, and then I realized, man, I'm going to be making that my garage forever because it'll be three rows on the end, and so then I'm like, well, let, let me try Pinot Blanc. So then I tried all the all my clients' Pinot Blancs, which were delicious, and then I was like, oh man, I don't want a late ripening thing right next to the trees, and it was like this is very un unlike me uh, to to waffle, and so then I'm like, crud. So the, I had done like a tasting with all my, my RP colleagues to find the best Pinot Blanc. And so then I finally punted uh, and we're adding a new Chardonnay clone um, and, uh, and saw some really interesting stuff from the nursery and a lot of research. So we'll have three rows of Robert Young Chardonnay. But that was kind of the last waffling. Um, and we have another clone, uh, one of the Mount Eden clones of Chardonnay because uh, Ryan Collins had planted some of that at Jacob Hart, and he said it was it yielded well and it was high quality, and it was that good combination. So that sounded like exactly what I was hoping for. Um, and the opposite of that would be there's a lot of clones that are high quality and low yielding, and um, and we really need to make it, it work financially. Um, and so the other Chardonnays are 76 and 95, very common. Um, perhaps too common, and so now we'll have four kind of colors to play with. And then with the Pinot Noir uh, Pomard, which is just a stalwart, and then Triple Seven, which is a fairly early ripening uh, Dijon clone. Um, and so all of that, fast to explain, but all involved some hand-wringing, and it was like, oh my gosh, what should we do? So. <laughs> It is hard when it's your own decision, right? It's hard. It is hard. I, I get yeah, it. It but it was fun to be able to like talk to winemakers I've been working with. You know, um, Brian Weil, uh, Joe Dobbs uh, chimed in on these things, and um, and my colleagues at RP uh, to say, you know, hey, what should I do here? So you talked about Chardonnay earlier, and 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 now you're planting it here. Uh, obviously, you mentioned it's kind of having a, having its moment now in, in the Willamette Valley. Tell me. Uh, from your perspective, as someone who is planting and maintaining vineyards, uh, how uh, have you how have you seen the growth, and and, and, the, and what do you, what excites you about Willamette Valley Chardonnay? I got a lot more excited about Chardonnay after visiting Burgundy, and um, the first time, and then the second time, it's like, oh my gosh, this is what could this is what the goal is, and that was really paradigm changing for me because it's like, oh my gosh, this is 
this is just a new level of, of, of the goal. Mm -hmm. And trying some wines like, you know, Walter Scott, uh, Ex Novo Vineyard, um, and Flaneur, and some of these amazing uh, Adelsheims, I think it's Caitlin's Reserve, just amazing Chardonnays that are really killer. And it's like, okay, that's the goal. And, and they can sell for a price that will translate to good prices for the grower. And okay, now I get it. So this is, you know, uh, generation two of Oregon Chardonnay. And I think it's, it's delicious. It's one of the wine, it's one of the grape varietals of Burgundy. Uh, the price point's there. And I think Oregon has a unique uh, story to tell with Chardonnay. And I think the people here that want to do it or want to, want to hit home runs with Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. And that's something we want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, that's very exciting. Mm -hmm. But it's also a versatile variety where you can, you can have a crisp, clean Chardonnay, uh, the stainless steel that gives you everything that Pinot Gris does, but there's, I, I've had a lot of stainless steel um, Chardonnays that are great and different and have varietal character, and Pinot Gris has less of that, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So with the actual Billinger Estate wine, obviously, uh, Kim kind of walks through a bit of the beginning, but I'm curious from your perspective, Initial goals for the brand, and, and then how, and then and then pivoting when maybe initial goals turn out to be a little bit harder than you anticipated. Yeah, John Hershey, one of my former clients, asked me how it was going. I was like, "Well, I'm finding the wine business to be humbling," and he, he laughed because he knew that I needed some of that. But um, it's it's very fun to have a project that's our own. But when I started. It, very embarrassingly, I started with the smallest amount of wine I could conceive of, thinking the smallest amount of wine that's a going thing. And I was like, 500 cases, because I'm used to you know, loading up a truck with eight tons, and that's just the first truck of the day, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we had 500 cases, and I was working full-time, Kim was working full-time, and the goal was, hey, a $20 Pinot that'll fly through grocery store shelves, easy peasy. And then they didn't because nobody was out there working it and it's an entirely different world um, of distribution uh, that it took a few years to realize, oh, this isn't working. And then luckily we had this property kind of at the time and, um, and pivoted, decreased production to right size with sales. And now we're, we're at, well, I think we're at 250 cases this year. Um, and we, may want to grow from there. But when I started, I wanted to be big. You know, I, I, all these folks we, we work with and I look up to, it's like I want, to, I want to be playing with those guys. But now I would much rather be viable <laughs> or, or um, solvent, right? And so I'm okay being, you know, I, my goal for Bellinger Estates is to be uh, self-sustaining and not requiring more capital, um, but be able to bring great wines to people to come and visit without, I, I no longer need to be, to be huge and be nationally distributed. And that's the opposite of what I would have said a few years ago. Is the plan, what is the plan with the grapes here? Is the plan just to, to be in a state winery or is the plan to make wines from other, elsewhere and sell these grapes? Or what, what is kind of your plan going forward with the vineyard? Yeah, we, with the 2020 vintage, we now have some estate wines, so we're super excited about that. Um, some Pinot Noir and Chardonnay will come, uh, came our way uh, to be made into wine uh, with our friends at Dobbs. And we also sold some of the grapes. So some of them got sold to Alexana, our great friends over there, and then some to Scott Kelly down in uh, Roseburg. And I'm really excited about that. I, these are people I've worked with for many years, and it's fun to be able to uh, send them wine that, uh, that I grew. And I want to do that as long as I can, because, and for the brand, I don't want to be estate-driven um, because there's just so many cool vineyards out there. And I've worked with a lot of these vineyards. And you know, our Reserve Pinot is a blend of now the Stark Vineyard and uh, Terry. And I planted both of those, um, and, and I farmed those still. And so to me, that's an interesting part of the story and something this site could never do because we're not covered in basalt cobbles like Terry, and we're not this beautiful exposure on Pear Mountain as Stark. And so to me, I would rather have a more exciting, uh, fun wine than, than just something I grew because I'm just a grape guy. Um, our South Pass Syrah, grown by our buddy Travis, 
uh, crazy vineyard site over in uh, the Snake River around Baker County and 3,400 feet of elevation. The, the wine's amazing and it's got like, it's sagebrush and it's, it's, it's bright and it's, it's just really unique and, and distinct. Uh, and if I was in a state model, I would never be able to tell that story and have that collaboration. Travis Cook, I assume. Tra the Travis yeah. Cook. The Travis yeah. Cook. Those are amazing grapes he's got out there. Um, you, you mentioned that you've been making garage wine a long time. Do you ever have any intention of making your own wine commercially? My joke used to be that I made or, uh, garage wine or garage yeast wine long enough to know that I really need to hire a winemaker. Um, and I don't want to be the winemaker. Um, I don't have the personality for it. Um, I, I want to get to 90% and stop. And, or 95% and stop and go on to the next task. And in agriculture, that's essential. A perfectionist in agriculture would die. Like it's just, um, you can never be perfect in ag because something's always growing or something like, or you know, cows get loose in your dang uh, vineyard or something like that. But in wine, a perfectionist is great because they're, they're looking to take it from 99% to 100%. And so, I've realized I'm not the personality for winemaking, and so um, let's hire the best people we can and work with great people, and uh, let's grow some great grapes. So you talked about your kind of goals for here of, of, of thinking large and now kind of changing that and, and being viable. Tell me about <laughs> what you see. And by viable, I mean not going broke. Not going broke. As yes. long as we don't get foreclosed, that's, that's a goal. Tell me what you foresee for Bellinger over the next five or 10 years. What, what's kind of your hope for, for the site and, and for the brand? We want to we want to double down on on direct to consumer. We want we want people to come here and to be able to have an amazing experience. And we 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 don't want to become like a um, I forget what the word is, but in the fall when you go pick up uh, pumpkins, like a pumpkin patch kind of thing. We don't want to be a pumpkin patch, but what does a pumpkin patch do? It brings people from the city out into the country, they're connecting with a farm and a piece of land, and they're making a memory. And that's what we want to do. So we want people to be able to come here, uh, hear our story, enjoy some delicious wines, and, and make a memory and connect with a piece of land. Um, my uncle visited Sokolblosser in like 1980, Eight or something like that. That photo uh, he took of his son is still on his desk and he remembers it like it was yesterday. And we have that capacity to build memories for new folks, mm -hmm. uh, to be able to come have a great experience, sit by the fire and look out over the Chehala Mountains behind us, drink a glass of wine and just have a great conversation with, with somebody you're next to. Um, hopefully we're going to be picking apples and, and things like that. And, and I think as a society we're losing that and, and we want to create that connection. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a bit about 2020 already, but I'm, I'm curious from, you, from your perspective, uh, obviously 2020 is a, a real fun topic to talk about right now, but let's talk about the, the pandemic first and, and, and its effects obviously uh, in the viticulture industry had a, a pretty, pretty big impact. Tell me about the, your, your recollections of it and, and, the, and the adjustments you had to make to kind of make it through the viticulture part of the year. In a way, it happened at a the first wave, so to speak, kind of like mid-March where everybody realized, oh, oh my gosh, this is a big one, right? Um, it happened at a good time for us viticulturally because it was kind of that lull after pruning, but before uh, shoot thinning and everything got rolling. And it it was so interesting. It was, it was a big global disaster happening in real time that was affecting everybody's personal life, everybody's business, but the grapes still need to get shoot then. They still need to be... Uh, uh, dealt with mm -hmm. and I was talking with my guys and early on and I was like because I, I like the big idea I like the vision like hey we're gonna get to the other side of this kind of thing but it's like this was at the time more like driving in the fog and when you're driving in the fog you can't see where you're going but you can see a little bit farther ahead so then you drive there and then you can see a little bit farther ahead and that was what we were doing in March and April and 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 forward and then it like more regulations came out and like guidance and things like that mm -hmm. okay social distancing uh, out in the vineyard masks in the vineyard um, like what happens when somebody gets sick what happens when somebody gets uh, test positive for COVID uh, contact tracing within the other uh, company and things like that and 
now, you know, a year later, it, it, we know what to do, but it was, it was the not knowing and the, the, the dramatic nature of it that was so, uh, so we're shaking. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to back up a little bit here. Uh, I'm curious about, uh, you had this sort of notion of, of wine and, and grapes growing up and its interest in it. Uh, as you became more aware of Oregon wine industry, do you remember like your first impressions of the industry, what, what, your, what your kind of the first experiences were like? I think I had the impression before joining it that it was, it was small and collegial and had that reputation. And I have very much found that to be true, that the Grape Days and then Oregon Wine Symposium, it, it's a fairly small organization. You know, now it's, um, I don't know, 2,500 people or 1,500 people, something like that. Um, that's just so much smaller than the comparable thing in California. And people are collaborative. And uh, you can call winemakers up and say, hey, I've got this thing. And uh, what should I plant? What kind of Chardonnay should I plant? <laughs> because I'm dithering over here. And uh, people are typically very nice and, and very helpful. So it, it's matched expectations in that way. It, it, very collegial, um, very, for the most part, kind. Yeah. What's changed in the industry since you've become a part of it? There's been more waves of kind of California and international interest. And every time there is one of those, there's that fear that, like, oh my gosh, this is kind of the end of Oregon. And that hasn't happened yet. Every time somebody has come in, it's generally been additive, uh, which is very nice. I will, there's more. It, it seems to be more of like an economic cluster, so to speak. Like, there's now more. The Allison, for example, was huge for, for the local uh, lodging. Red Hills Market, and it's like there's this culture in the wine business of, of folks that are in the wine business that want uh, excellent food, they want excellent lodging, mm -hmm. and, and the people that come here for tourism. And so uh, that's grown, and I think it's, that's a good thing. And what about for the future? What do, you, what do you see Oregon wine looking like coming out of the pandemic and, and then uh, for the next five or 10 years? I think the growth generally, I, I think we're going to see more of the same and faster. And you know, we. How many times have you said some? Have you heard somebody say this just feels like Napa in you know 1975? And I think we're moving along a trajectory towards that. And I, I want to keep our Oregon uh, roots and our Oregon spirit, but uh, but Oregon's too good of a a place to keep a secret, right? Um, and that's never going to happen. So how do we how do we grow? How do we welcome more visitors sustainably and uh, and kind of tell our story? So I, I think I think what's we're going to see more of what we've seen, and that's a good thing. You hear a lot of times people say, "Oh, there's too many wine brands," and I feel uh, part of, you know responsible for that <laughs> in my small way. But um, it's up to everybody to tell the Oregon story. And I think that's a good thing, that we're, we've got more and more people out there beating the pavement across the world to uh, tell our story. And that's a good thing. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to join the Oregon wine industry in some, in some capacity? I would very much encourage them. I, I think it's, it's so much easier to get a job and to grow in something that's growing. And so, and as I mentioned, it's, it's so diverse. There's so much space for folks. I, I think it's wonderful. I would just tell them to you know, keep their ears open and uh, be nice to interns. Because um, Kim and I, we used to um, uh, rent rooms out of our, out of our house um, to people like wine interns. And it was always a great experience. We always got to meet somebody from across the world in a lot of cases. And some of those people have gone on to do great things. Um, and uh, so yeah, generally it should be nice to everybody, but particularly it'd be nice to interns <laughs> because uh, they're going to be the rock star winemakers of the next generation. Uh, last question for you, and it's one I kind of passed over earlier, but uh, I'm sort of curious about it now. Uh, you obviously, you're, you're full time with Results Partners, uh, it's quite, quite, a, quite a job. Tell me about your role here and, and sort of what you want what you want to be able to give to Bellinger Estate as it as it grows. 
chief bullshit officer. I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it's fun because I like. It's fun to like start something and launch something, and to me, I don't have to be here in the tasting room um, telling the story to get that enjoyment. The fact that Kim's doing an amazing job with that, or hopefully one day we'll be able to hire somebody, like that's okay. Um, it doesn't have to be me, and I very much enjoy what I do. Like, I. I enjoy planting new vineyards and discovering what it can do and being part of uh, the broader industry. And so I, I like that broad nature. And then at Bellinger States, it's it's narrow in terms of what the site and our wines and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it, it's been educational for me to see that side of things. And I think it lends um, an extra nuance in speaking with clients because then it's like, okay, it's easy for us to say, we'll plant 60 acres and then we'll see how it goes. And um, it's, I think it's an added uh, bonus to know a little bit about how wine sells mm -hmm. or doesn't sell in our case. So. Now you have a model vineyard to come show off to potential clients. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, yeah, that, uh, uh, that we love and uh, yeah, it's nice. All the questions that I have for you, anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? One, one thing I wanted to mention, totally didn't come up with, with anything, but uh, Kim was getting her MBA and she wanted to go uh, uh, travel abroad for that because she always regretted not traveling abroad during her undergrad. And so um, she was like, and PSU had something to go to the Middle East. And she was like, that's crazy. I would never go to the Middle East if it wasn't as part of this bigger trip. And so uh, I was able to like basically audit the class somehow. Um, and so we spent like a week in uh, Kuwait and a week in Qatar. And um, it was so interesting because coming from the Western background, like wine in a lot of families is a part of daily activity. It's a part of uh, religious ceremonies. It's just, uh, it's so integral to what we're, what we're doing. But in Middle Eastern countries, it is entirely not. Um, and like Kuwait was like dry, not a speck of wine anywhere. And um, in Qatar, you could get it at um, uh, some like Western, like the W Hotel in Doha mm -hmm. had like two different types of wine. And so at the end of like a, a very fun, very cool, um, very educational trip, I was very thirsty uh, for some wine. And um, so I had a glass of, it was like a provincial rosé at the W Hotel in Doha after like two weeks of like no alcohol. And that was like for some unheard of amount of money. And that was like the best glass of wine I've ever had because it was like cool and crisp and in this uh, amazing different country. And um, uh, it was just my, probably my favorite glass of wine ever. I love it. That's that great. story has nothing to do with anything. That's, that's, that's the whole point of the whole, the whole point of the interview, right? Uh, appreciate your time today. Appreciate your, your hospitality, making sure we set this interview up and, and getting us out here. And uh, thank you so much. We'll let you off the hook. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>